This evening, I'll continue with this story of the Buddha's life, continuing with this exploration of how does the Buddha's life and his teaching, how do they connect? How do they offer us glimpses and understandings into our own practice? His life in many ways was his teaching. And then he shared it. He described it as he lived it from his own experience. So we're learning. We're practicing in response to his direct experience. Finding our own experience. This is why he often said, you know, I will, I will point out the way, but it's you that has to walk it, and it's up to you to see if it's true, if it works, if it's valid for you. So you may recall that before we took a detour to spend some time with Mara, we left the Buddha having spent those years in the ascetic practices that very hard, striving, effortful attempt at waking up. And he came to the realization that it wasn't getting him where he wanted to go. That mortification of the body, trying to mortify, rid oneself of the body as if somehow by ridding oneself of the body the mind would be free. And he realized this was not working. That this was a futile attempt. And he didn't know exactly what to do. And he spent some time reflecting on that. And he remembered that experience of being relaxed and alert under the rose apple tree. And many of us may have these experiences in our past that give us a hint that something else is possible. I think of a story for me that's a little odd, but in my, I I was very curious about meditation and I spent a lot of time looking for it in my 20s and it wasn't really around the way it is now. And I remember at one point I got a book that gave instructions about staring at a candle. 
staring at a rock. I did those things. It didn't really seem to do much. But at the time I was also a rock climber and um, that was sort of my full-time preoccupation. And one of the things I discovered was that if I free soloed, so I'm not recommending anything that I'm talking about here, that if I free soloed up large rocks, which at the time I lived in Yosemite Valley, so there were plenty of large rocks around, um, that after a period of time, there would be this collecting of my mind that when I paid, and I didn't know to name it that way, but what I noticed was if for an hour I paid attention to every movement of my body, every place that a hand contacted the rock or a foot, And my attention was very continuous because, you know, they say sit at the end, that maybe it's helpful sometimes to sit at the edge of a well because you won't fall asleep. Well, this was the extreme version. If I lost contact with what I was, I would fall off and I would die. So there was a lot of incentive. And I enjoyed the climbing But what I really noticed was this incredible calm in my mind. The whole, it all coming together. You know those moments in our practice where that happens. Fortunately, it turns out there's a much safer way to accomplish this. I'm very grateful to the Buddha. So sometimes through, perhaps you had uh, your own experiences where there's that collectedness of mind, but you notice, and this happened for me, it wasn't fully satisfying because when I got up and went away, it was still there. The suffering was still there. It hadn't changed anything. So the Buddha realizes he's going to do it differently and he goes and receives nourishment. You might recall, he realized that this being in this starvation state was not helpful. And there was a woman, Sujata, who offered him porridge. And that's later in the commentaries. But it's interesting because it brings in this contact, this receiving from someone else, and particularly from the feminine. And it's interesting, later in the Buddha's life, as he created the monastic order and created the um, rules for the monastics, he made it, one of the rules was that the monastics couldn't store food overnight. 
that every day they had to make contact with someone to offer them food. So this sense of interdependence and connection, this also really highlights the sense that as we practice, we're not just doing it for ourselves. We're doing it as an offering. I know when I come on retreat, when it gets rough, I just have to keep reminding myself, it's not about me. It's not about me. If it was about me, I'd be somewhere else doing something a lot more fun. This is about an offering to diminish suffering in the world. And as we have contact, that's one of the reasons doing it collectively here. We don't lose touch. So he makes this resolve that he's going to go off and find another way. And the night before his enlightenment, he has five dreams. And this is interesting because there isn't that much that I know of in the sutta about dreams. But this is one place before he becomes enlightened that dreams come in. And these are his five dreams. There's a couple of them that I think are particularly uh, important. So the first one is that he sees himself lying on the ground, very large. His head is on the Himalayas. One hand is in the East Ocean, one in the West Ocean, his feet in the South Ocean. So basically covering that whole India, south of the Himalaya area. And this is understood, he understood to be a foretelling of his enlightenment. So the second dream was a creeper that grew out of his navel and grew up towards the sky, touching the clouds. And this foretold the discovery of the Eightfold Path. The third dream was of white grubs with black heads crawling from his feet to his knees. Sounds a little uncomfortable to me, but this foretold many white-clad lay people would go to refuge to the Buddha. And this is interesting because it's pointing at, at that time and later, lay people would often wear white, maintaining their household or life, but naming their commitment to the spiritual path. Really, we all here are white-clad lay people. Committed to the path and still lay people. So he had this vision that this was accessible to us. And then his fourth dream. This one I feel is very significant. He saw four birds of different colors coming from different directions. And as they alighted on his feet, they became luminous. And this was 
understood to foretell that the four castes would achieve supreme deliverance. So at that time, the way oppression and marginalization, a dominant way that took place in the culture was through the caste system. And whatever you were born into, that was what you would die in. There was no movement. And even before he's enlightened, even before he has any followers, he has the vision and the understanding that all of these people have the ability and the right to become awakened. No one left out. His fifth dream was he walked upon a huge mountain of dirt without becoming fouled. This foretold that he would obtain the requisites of food, clothing, shelter, and medicine without greed, clinging, or delusion. So this is saying that he would be able to move around in the world, that it's possible to walk in the complexity amongst the the dirt in the symbology of the dream, and yet be in the world but not be mm, lost in it, not be confused not have greed, aversion, and delusion take over, that this was possible. So this was the night before his enlightenment. And then he goes and he he realizes he's not afraid of pleasure. He understands that it's about non-attachment. He doesn't really know quite where it's all leading but he understands about non-attachment rather than avoidance and aversion. And so he sits down below a tree, and I particularly love this, that the Buddha was born, enlightened, dies under a tree outside. He sits under the Bodhi tree, and he vows not to arise until he has awakened. Now, to us, it sounds a little like, well, it sounds like he's gone back into striving mode, doesn't it? I'm going to sit here to not get up till I awaken. Well, apparently, later on in the suttas, we discover that when Buddha talks about his past, he had a really high capacity to sit, like maybe up to seven days, and that it wasn't painful because of his concentration practice. He could sit for a long time, but not as an ascetic practice, not in racking pain or something, simply because that was what was available to him, and it was skillful. And you might notice for yourself, there are times when we can stay seated, when we have that capacity. We're, we're getting to this place in the retreat where you might notice that the bell rings and there's no urge to go. 
what is it like to sit longer with no striving, no efforting, simply because that wholesome desire to awaken is present. And he's really, this will come up, this effortness, this effortfulness, but without striving will come up later, right? It shows up in the Eightfold Path as wise effort. So he sits under the Bodhi tree. And what does he discover there? It's interesting because there are a number of stories in the suttas about his awakening. And you might say that the different stories are being told from different angles. And who's telling the stories? The Buddha is. And he used his awakening as a teaching story. So depending on what might have been useful in that telling of the story, he emphasized different aspects. We we experience this all the time, right? You had a sit and you come in to talk to us about your sit and you go, wow, I could look at this so many different ways. What's actually useful here? Experience is so multidimensional. So the Buddha had this night of his awakening and he describes it differently at different times. So one of the most common ways that we hear it described that's in the suttas is in the three watches of the night. In the first watch, he establishes a collectedness and steadiness of mind. He he uses his ability with concentration and absorption to get very collected and still. And then he has the experience of seeing all his past lives. Where he was born, where he died, he lived thus and he had this happen. I don't find this very hard to believe at all. When you sit, sometimes, isn't there just this, you're all collected and then there's these memories going through. You didn't go looking for them. There's something about this collecting of the mind that allows this replaying, this seeing clearly. And for him, with the power of his mind, he saw many, many, many lives. And then in the second watch of the night, now we start to get into the mind of the Buddha a little bit, his concentration and his uh, capacities exceed ours. And he started seeing everybody's lives. I feel kind of grateful that I haven't had that experience. 
So he's seeing many, many people, many, many lives over, all around the world, over and over, and he's just seeing it all. And he is noticing, seeing clearly how what one does and how what someone else does and that there's all this conditionality playing out. He's seeing how what people do affects what happens. He sees karma. He sees the unfolding of karma. And then comes the third watch of the night. And the later stories add that moment, that events of Mara. He's getting close now. It's starting to look like this Bodhisattva is going to do what is Mara's worst fear, become enlightened and help free other people. So Mara comes, and you've probably heard the stories of sending arrow. He shoots arrows at him. And I love that story. He shoots arrows at him, and as they come into the Buddhist field, they fall as flowers. And I think that's a beautiful uh, metaphor for the metta practice, isn't it? That we, we do the metta and what seemed unworkable before, what seemed so difficult, can fall like flowers around us. So it feels to me like the Buddha went into his final realization in a field of metta. Mara also tries sending sensuous daughters to, for, with stories of taunting him and the Buddha is not very impressed. And then remember John mentioned quite a while ago when he talked about doubt. There's that moment when Mara says to him, who do you think you are to wake up? And this, this moment of that doubt, that um, conceit, like, are, you know, do you think you're better than everybody else? Do you think you got what it takes? This, the conceit, is the last fetter. We haven't really talked about the fetters, but they're these different things that hold us back. Conceit is understood to be the last fetter that drops before full enlightenment. So Mara comes with this last fetter of, do you think you're better than everybody else? Who do you think you are? I think you're less than.
And the Buddha's response is that wonderful gesture we see, that touching the ground, as the earth is my witness. I am of this earth. And that in itself, I am part of the whole. I have everything it takes to awaken here in me already. I don't need to prove anything to you, Mara. And this is what he said again and again later. We all have everything it takes. The possibility of Buddhahood is present in us. And in some of the stories, the earth thunders its response. And in some, when he touches the earth, the feminine earth goddess appears and wrings her wet hair and the floods come down and wash Mara away. I like that. And I like also that in this critical moment, the Buddha isn't alone. He's being supported. He's getting a little help. Help from the fact that we're all connected, that we're all interrelated. And having washed Mara away, he sees things as they truly are, the deepest truths of existence. And what he sees is the Four Noble Truths. And he sees that we are hooked by craving and the taints, the desire for sensual pleasure, the desire for existence, and by our ignorance, the ignorance of not understanding what causes suffering and what causes happiness. And when he sees that and fully understands it, he wakes up. He sees the truth. And he declared, birth is exhausted, the holy life has been lived out, what was to be done is done, Ignorance was banished and true knowledge arose. And I allowed no such pleasant feeling as arose in me to gain power over my mind. Isn't that interesting? He's saying right there, it, there was pleasant, it sounds like there was some pleasantness, but it, he was no longer, it did not control him. So then another description of the awakening very um, helpfully, uh, very very usefully, he, what he sees is dependent origination, which you know from Andrea's talk last night or many times before. He sees this conditionality, the way things come into be and the way they are dissolved, the way ignorance is freed. Particularly, and the way he understands it at that time is just a little bit different than the 12 links. 
he takes it all the way back to consciousness and body. And this is what he understands. Just as consciousness is the condition for name and form, so name and form is the condition for consciousness. In other words, these two links stand in, this is actually from Manalio, these two links stand in relationship of reciprocal conditioning to each other. So, Namarupa, body and mind, arise with consciousness. These are two, the later images of two sheaths of wheat leaning against each other. Both are needed. And the Nibbana, the understanding, is when we see that and they no longer hold us. The moment of freedom. This understanding of consciousness, this awakening, another way sometimes it's, here's from the Anguta Nikaya, luminous is consciousness, brightly shining is its nature. This is the free mind that is only clouded by attachments that visit it. The body and mind arise, but when they are not trapped by ignorance, they also dissolve. They don't hold us in the same way. Here's a slightly more... um, We're sort of in the terrain here where it's outside of words and outside of what we can describe. So the Buddha sometimes used other words, other stories too. And this is one of the wonderful ones he uses to describe this freedom that is possible when we see through the ignorance, when consciousness and body are no longer held by ignorance. This is what the Buddha said. Just as if there was a roofed, there were a roofed house or a roofed hall having windows on the north, the south, or the east. When the sun rises and a shaft of light has entered by way of the window, where does it land? He's asking one of his monastics this. And the monastic says, on the western wall, venerable sir. And if there is no western wall, on the ground, venerable sir. And if there is no ground, on the water, venerable sir. I think he's flailing a little. He found water. And if there is no water, it does not land, venerable sir. In the same way, When there is no passion for physical nutriment, contact, consciousness, or intention, consciousness does not land or grow. That, I tell you, is quite free from sorrow, affliction, or despair.
a more colloquial way I've sometimes heard it described is you're up in a uh, you're up in an airplane and you're going to do a parachute jump and it's frightening and all that and you jump out of the airplane and you're floating along and you're thinking okay time to pull the parachute and then you realize you don't have a parachute that's pretty uncomfortable until you realize there's no ground. Where else did the Buddha point to help us understand this awakening. He pointed to the five aggregates, to the five components of being, material form, feeling, perception, formations, and consciousness. And what he said about them was, he thought about these and he said, what is the gratification what is the danger and what is the escape? And I thought, he's, and he said, I thought in the case of each, the bodily pleasure and the mental joy that arise in dependence on these. So we've talked about this a lot, right? Where our pleasure and our both physical and mental is dependent on some particular condition. And he says, when we're dependent on these five aggregates, that's the gratification in the case of each of these. But the fact that these are all impermanent, fundamentally changing, that's the danger. They're not going to stick around. And the disciplining and abandoning of desire and lust for them is the escape. When I knew by direct knowledge the gratification, the danger, and the escape, in the case of the five aggregates subject to clinging, then I claimed to have discovered enlightenment that is supreme. So he's describing here very much this letting go. Letting go of the desires of the I, the wanting. the ways that we strive to make things pleasant. Ajahn Chah puts it very simply. He says, if you see certainty in, what, in that which is uncertain, you are bound to suffer. Pretty simple. And we practice this in the letting go over and over again. Ajahn Samedo has a wonderful story about this. He says, the practice of letting go is very effective for minds obsessed by compulsive thinking. 
You simplify your meditation practice down to just two words, letting go. Rather than try to to develop this practice and then develop that practice and achieve this and go into that and understand this and read the suttas and study the Abhidhamma and then learn Pali and Sanskrit and then then the Majjhimanika and the Prajnaparamita and then get ordination in the Hinayana, Mahayana, Vajrayana and then write books and become a world-renowned authority on Buddhism. Instead of becoming the world's expert on Buddhism and being invited to great international Buddhist conferences, just let go, let go, let go. I did nothing but this for almost two years. Every time I tried to understand or figure things out, I'd say, let go, let go, until the desire would fade out. So I'm making it very simple for you to save you from getting caught in incredible amounts of suffering. There's nothing more sorrowful than having to attend international Buddhist conferences. (laughs) It's a wonderful, let go, that's a wonderful reducing of what the Buddha found on his awakening. And with this, he has this wonderful final poem he's said after he awoke. Seeking but not finding the house builder, I traveled through the round of countless births. Oh, painful is birth ever and again. House builder, you have been seen. You shall not build this house again. Your rafters have been broken down. Your ridgepole is demolished too. My mind has now attained the unformed Nibbana and reached the end of every kind of craving. And in that, the craving, the, the house, the house is the individual existence, the belief in the self. The house builder is strive is craving. The rafters are the passions and the ridge pole is ignorance. Released. So he woke up. He showed it was possible. And we get there through effort, through understanding, through cultivating clarity of mind. It's not through belief in others, belief in rituals and rites, not by doing penance or mortification of the body. Through clearly seeing suffering, the release, seeing the arising of I, and the release. So after the Buddha became awakened, 
he spent several weeks, kind of a, and if you go to Bodh Gaya, there's these places around where the Bodhi tree is, where he's purported, but it is in the suttas, that he spent time. He'd spend a week in one spot, hanging out, processing what he had realized. And in that, he uh, spent a lot of time with dependent origination, understanding it more and more clearly. Spending time understanding the five aggregates more clearly. In this time, he came to understand and elucidate in his own mind the five spiritual faculties of confidence, energy, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. He understood in this time the four foundations of mindfulness. And I think this is very much a reflection of what happens for us, right? You have a deep insight. You see something new. You understand on a different level. And then there's a processing that goes on. There might even be a little bit of reflecting, but an assimilating, an integrating of it. And it's, that's a very important aspect. You get to know what it's like to live inside that truth of the insight that you've had. Good not to hurry on to something else. Stay put. He sat for a long time, weeks. And during this, he also has the question, he wonders, so now, you know, the way it usually works is that you practice, you follow a teacher. And who, who am I going to follow? Because who else has realized this? And he says, well, there isn't somebody else. So what I will do is I will be a follower of the Dharma. The Dharma will be the teacher I follow. And this in some ways is repeated at the end of his life. When they're like, well, who's going to be the next guy? You know, who are you going to pass the torch to? Who's going to be the guru? And he's like, no, it's the Dharma. It's the Dharma. The truth. It's not about me. It's not about the Buddha, he was saying. It's about the Dharma. So then he thinks, hmm, maybe I should do something with this understanding I have. And I'll read to you this piece out of the suttas. So he's sitting alone and in seclusion, and this is what arose in his awareness. This dhamma that I have attained is deep, hard to see, hard to realize, peaceful, refined beyond the scope of conjecture, subtle, to be experienced by the wise. But this generation delights in attachment, is excited by attachment, enjoys attachment. 
for a generation delighting in attachment, excited by attachment, enjoying attachment, this conditionality and dependent co-arising are hard to see. Not sure much has changed in 2,600 years. This state, too, is hard to see. The resolution of all fabrications, the relinquishment of all acquisitions, the ending of craving, dispassion, cessation, unbinding. And if I were to teach the Dhamma and if others would not understand me, that would be tiresome for me, troublesome for me. Isn't that pretty funny? The Buddha saying, ah, too much work. (laughs) That's going to be all bothersome. People aren't going to get it. And then he goes on to say, enough now with teaching. What? Only with difficulty I reach. This Dhamma is not easily realized by those overcome with aversion and passion. What is obtruse, subtle, deep, hard to see, going against the flow, those delighting in passion cloaked in the mass of darkness won't see. Well, it's not looking very good for us at that moment, is it? Looks like he's just going to hang out there and just sort of rest on his laurels and be happy. But it doesn't end there, as we know. So a Brahmin comes to him, which it's very interesting. It's a Brahmin because a Brahmin was the is a uh, the religious leader of the dominant religion at the time. So this seems like maybe a little politics came into the suttas, that you have the leader of the other religion coming and requesting that the Buddha teach. So the Brahmin comes to him and says, there are beings with little dust in their eyes. There are beings who are wasting through not hearing the Dhamma. Some of them will gain final knowledge. Please teach them. And the Buddha realizes that out of compassion that he is moved to teach. That, and in this we can see that the, it's not that he necessarily needs to, but that activity is an expression of understanding. That activity is an expression and is the compassionate response. The desire to relieve suffering. That we don't just close up into our own little cocoon. That the Dhamma of seeing the truth is a Dhamma of compassion of movement. That this is a wholesome thing to do. The desire to relieve suffering. Andrea spoke to this some this morning. The wholesome desire to act out of compassion. This is the expression of Dhamma. So he goes out into the world to share this. 
And what he says is, that he, ex- he expresses this enlightenment as bodhi. Bodhi. I am a, bodhi translates as awake. I am awake, he says. And what is he awake to? All these things that we've been talking about. Yata Buddha is a term in the Pali. Awake to the way things happen. Awake to the way things unfold. Not to a particular state, a static place of bliss. But to the way things happen and in that how happiness and suffering unfold. So he is now awake and he's decided to teach. And who will he teach? Who are these beings with little dust in their eyes? So he recalls sitting there, his two first teachers. And he's like, oh, the natural urge to share what he has discovered with those who helped him along the way. I I hear this a lot. We discover how much the Dhamma, how much our practice has helped us. And we're like, how do I tell my parents about this, my, my children about this, those I care about, this natural urge for those we care about that they might be free. Unfortunately for the Buddha, those two teachers had died, both died in the time since he had practiced with them. So he remembers his five ascetic friends that he'd been doing the practices with, who turned away when he went soft and drank the porridge. But he remembers, ah, okay. And he can see with his divine eye, he's in Bodh Gaya, and he sees that they're near Varanasi in the deer park at Saravati. So he gets up and he starts walking in that direction to go see them. And he meets a... Brahmin along the way. And the Brahmin looks at him and he this he looks radiant and calm and the this person as is who, who you look radiant. Who is your teacher? And the Buddha responds, I am awake. And then the Buddha goes on with this, these superlatives about what he has discovered and how wonderful it is and how great it is that he's discovered it. And the Brahmin kind of goes, not sure about this, shakes his head and goes off. Well, I kind of like that story because the Buddha's first attempt at teaching does not go well. He just, he's like all caught up and doesn't, totally fails to connect with this guy. So he keeps going and he gets to the, the deer park. And at that point, he's perhaps a little bit a little more subdued because he knows these guys and a little more uh, measured 
in his so he spends some time talking to them at first they don't want to talk to him at all they're they see him coming and they're like we're not talking to that guy Gotama has gone soft you know he doesn't but then they see how radiant he is and they can't help themselves so they start talking to him and it's interesting because this is the only time in the suttas where the Buddha goes to somebody and teaches them after that People always ask him questions. People come to him. And this is why in the tradition, there's the basic idea of not proselytizing, that people have to come to the Dharma of their own accord. But it's interesting because he cared about them. This is one case where he said, well, I do want to share something with you and see if it's useful. So sometimes maybe there's reason to do that. And so he sets... He starts sharing the Dhamma with them. And the first thing he shares is the middle way. There are these two extremes that are not to be indulged in by one who has gone forth. Which two? That which is devoted to sensual pleasure with reference to sensual objects and that which is devoted to self-affliction. Avoiding both of these extremes, the middle way realized by the Tathagata produced vision, producing knowledge, leads to calm, to direct knowledge, to self-awakening, to unbinding. So first he tells them there's this middle way. And then he unfolds for them the Four Noble Truths. This is the first turning of the wheel. The unfolding of the Dhamma. And there's a moment where one of them, Kundana, one of his friends, understands that and says, all that is subject to arising is subject to cessation. He sees this pattern of impermanence. And he attains stream entry. And then... They continue to have a conversation. They're talking. He explains more about the Eightfold Truths. And over time, the three, other, three of the others also see this and awaken to stream entry. And it's interesting because this is awakening. They, these guys have done a lot of preparatory work. They've been practicing a long time, very hard. But the, these awakenings take place in relationship. They're in a conversation. The Buddha's teaching. How rewarding for a teacher. Anybody woken up tonight? You know? I mean, he explains. And they get it. I think you have to be a Buddha, maybe. But their prepared minds and then something happens. And the thing about this is, is it points to how sometimes we can have this feeling sitting on the cushion like, oh, something's about to happen. Something, you know, as if it's going to happen right there. But it happens again and again in the suttas. When somebody gets up to walk, when somebody says something to someone, when somebody's about to go to bed. It's interesting how these moments of awakening happen. You've seen it yourself. Moments of insight, of understanding. 
They don't happen in some sort of neat formula. They arise. And our role in our practice is to stay available and ready for them. And then he gives a second discourse to them. And this is the discourse of the release of clinging of the five aggregates from his night of the awakening. And when he offers them that, when he points to that letting go, letting go of self, let go, let go, let go, all five attain full liberation. And these are the first monastics of the Sangha. So I'll end with a poem from Dana Falds called Let It Go. Appropriate. Let go of the ways you thought life would unfold. The holding of plans or dreams or expectations. Let it all go. Save your strength to swim with the tide. The choice to fight what is here before you now will only result in struggle, fear, and desperate attempts to flee from the very energy you long for. Let go. Let it all go and flow with the grace that washes through your days, whether you receive it gently or with all your quills raised to to defend against invaders. Take this on faith. The mind may never find the explanations that it seeks, but you will move forward nonetheless. Let go, and the wave's crest will carry you to unknown shores, beyond your wildest dreams or destinations. Let it all go and find the place of rest and peace and certain transformation. That's it. Let go of the ways you thought life would unfold, the holding of plans or dreams or expectations. Let it all go. Save your strength to swim with the tide. The choice to fight what is here before you now 
will only result in struggle, fear, and desperate, desperate attempts to flee from the very energy you long for. Let go. Let it all go and flow with the grace that washes through your days, whether you receive it gently or with all your quills raised to defend against invaders. Take this on faith. The mind may never find the explanations that it seeks, but you will move forward nonetheless. Let go, and the wave's crest will carry you to unknown shores, beyond your wildest dreams or destinations. Let it all go and find the place of rest and peace and certain transformation. Thank you for going on the journey of the Buddha's life with me.